I needed help for years and years, not days, not months, not weeks, years. And it really helped emphasize that you need the strength of that community. And when you have the strength of those people, you really can help share the load, carry the burden together, link arms and get through life together. Welcome to the Healthy Steps with Nicole podcast, where it is my goal to help you see what is possible for your business, for your life, and for the sales that are going to get you there. Get ready to be inspired and supported while you launch and grow your health and wellness business. I'm Nicole Kramer, coach, sales expert, and health and wellness fanatic. Each week, I will be having amazing guest experts that will share with us their knowledge on mindset, money, how to attract your dream clients, successfully close sales, and so much more. Selling doesn't have to be hard. You can have the confidence and the clarity you need to create and grow your dream business. Welcome. I am here with a wonderful, incredible person and a dear friend of mine, Jody Brown. And I am so excited for this conversation we're going to have here today because Jody has some incredible things to share with you, an incredible story of overcoming and the lessons she's learned from it. And Jody and I recently met, actually, and we just have so many things that we connected on that we became fast friends. And I'm really excited to have her here. Uh, Quick backstory. We became friends because we are both officially certified exactly what to say guides. And we do beautiful work with teaching people how to have conversations that really help them get more of the results that they want more often. Um, so a little bit of the background in how Jody and I met, and I am super excited to have her here with us today. So Jody, thank you for being here. I'm thrilled to be here with you because as you mentioned, we haven't known each other very long, but when we connected, I think we both felt immediately that this was a connection that was meant to be one that has been long time incoming and now it's cemented and we will be friends forever. Yes. We went to see Wicked together. I mean, come on. Oh. How much better did we get than that? <laughs> While we were in New York City, we had the opportunity to go see a Broadway show and Wicked was what we saw. And I think we both shed tears during it because it's such a powerful uh, story. And um, yeah, just so grateful to have shared those those fun memories with you and many more to come. Absolutely. Yeah. So speaking of one of the one of the things that was really a big takeaway for me during our time in New York is you shared your story with me and it's so powerful and I want you to share a little bit about you and who you are and kind of dive into that because you know I, I have an audience of health and wellness people and I think this will be really fascinating for them to hear some of the lessons that I know are really impactful in what you've gone through. You know I was living what I really deemed to be my white ticket fence life. I was in my early 30s. I was married to my best friend, a man who I would say is not who I always thought that I would be looking for, but instead who is everything I never knew that I needed in my life, if that makes any sense at all. Um, and we have four kids and our my youngest at the time was just turning two years old. My oldest was 10. And I was working in a career that I loved as a nonprofit executive. I'm CFRE certified nonprofit consultant, and I had gotten the education I wanted. I have a master's degree in organizational communication, and I really felt like I was doing some good in the world, which was one of my goals. I always decided if I'm going to spend time away from my family, away from home, I need to be somehow contributing to the greater good of the world. 
And I was doing that. And so honestly, I could tell you I was living a white ticket fence life. Things were just lining up and it was really beautiful. And I couldn't have thought of any more that I could have asked for, which is, of course, right when things started then to go awry. And over the course of several months, I started developing some, what I can now say were symptoms that I didn't quite know what to do with. It started with dizzy spells. And I went to the doctor and told the doctor I was having dizzy spells and uh, went back a few months later because I started getting debilitating headaches. And every time I went in with a new condition, I walked away with another diagnosis, you know, oh, you're probably stressed, you have four kids, you work full time, you volunteer, you know, you're probably having tension migraines, or you probably have an inner ear infection. And all of these things sounded absolutely legitimate to me. So I really didn't question them. And I went in with one thing at a time, I didn't look at them as symptoms of something greater. I looked at them. each. Yes, I didn't look at them as connected. And I think that is why it took so long to figure it out. But after a series of eight months and three different doctor's appointments going in for different symptoms, finally, we got to a point where I was not very functional anymore. And I did not know why. And when my husband came home from work one day, asked how I was doing, I sadly had to admit that I was not doing very well. And that moment really changed things. He looked at me and he said, Jody, something is wrong. Like something is really wrong. And I know you've been to the doctor multiple times, but you've got to go back and you need to keep looking. We've got to keep looking until we figure this out. And hearing both the insistence in his voice, as well as a little bit of like vehemence, like he doesn't talk to me that way. And that told me something like, okay, this is serious. If he believes there's something really wrong, I need to listen and I need to stop sweeping it under the rug and acting like I'm okay and I need to take charge. And so I made appointments, went back to the doctor. The doctor said, all right, well, let's do a workup. Let's do all of your blood work. Let's do family history. And when all of that came back clean and my blood results were good, I think they were ready to just say, okay, well, you're good. Let's move on. And I said, but I'm not good. I'm I'm not okay. And I need to know what is the next step. And the doctor said that the next step would be an MRI of my brain. And as soon as I was in the MRI machine, literally, I hadn't even left the hospital before the MRI tech came and chased me down and said, because you are the first patient of the day, the radiologist is looking at your scans live. And he thinks he sees something. And they brought me back in to the radiology lab and actually pulled it up on the computer and showed me these scans. And she circled a spot on that computer and said, right there, he thinks he sees a spot on your brain. Would you be willing to stay, do another MRI, this time with contrast dye so we can get a better look and see what's going on? And in that moment, I actually felt vindicated. I really felt somewhat relieved that that I was not a hypochondriac, that I was not crazy, that I was not making all of these things up, but there was something there. And I had great hope. Like, okay, we're going to figure this out. We're going to take care of it. And my life is going to go back to normal. Uh, That is what I hoped. And that is what I believed. 
And I know now that that was very naive, but I didn't know that at the time. And now I understand that ignorance really is bliss. It's sometimes better if you don't know what you're getting yourself into, because I was up for a really big fight in my life, indeed a fight for my life. And if I had known going into it, how hard it was going to be, I don't know if I would have had the strength to start the battle, but I am forever grateful that my naivety led me in the direction that I went and that we undertook this battle because it means I am still here and I am still fighting every day to live a beautiful life. And helping others do the same through your story, might I add, which people are going to get to hear because I want you to continue sharing. But something I want to point out is they weren't going to do the MRI. No, they weren't going to do the MRI. You knew you were connected to something that you knew you needed to advocate for yourself. You know, I think I knew it within myself. And then my husband telling me to do the same almost gave me that permission that I hadn't fully accepted responsibility for myself yet. And him pushing me said, okay, Jody, you know, you know, you need to do this. Go ahead and do it. Because my normal self, (laughs) I am a go-getter, conquer the world, get her done kind of girl. That's how I've been my whole life. And so it's not normal for me not to take control of things. But because I had continued to go to the doctor without things really changing, I think over time, I just tried to dismiss it thinking, well, I did my part, I tried. And, you know, I, I have this potential, you know, yeah, I probably do have migraines from this, I probably did have an inner ear infection. And so I accepted what I was told rather than really, really listening to myself. And um, I think you have to be in the right state of mind. And you have to really believe in yourself and be willing to listen to yourself so that you can advocate for yourself. And I was really good at doing it for that period of time. And then when things got crazy again, it became very difficult again, because by the time we took the next steps and my doctor called uh, after the results of my MRI came up, he called me and had one of those conversations that you never, ever forget. I have. Mrs. Brown, I don't even know what to say, but it appears that there's a tumor or a mass between the end of your ear canal and your brainstem. And then the next words that came out of his mouth were things I didn't even understand. So I just grabbed a pencil and started jotting down everything I heard him say so that I could at least have some notes and figure out what the next step was. And at the end of the call, he told me, we've already called a neurosurgeon. And I explained the situation. He cleared his schedule and he will see you first thing on Monday morning. Now, this was a Friday afternoon. It was a Friday afternoon of spring break, Easter weekend. People were out of town. Kids were out of school. Friday afternoon. And the doctor, the neurosurgeon was going to see me at eight o'clock in the morning on Monday. I was astounded by that. And that was a glimpse at what was to come, which meant that the doctors, the people I was working with, had an idea of the severity of what I was facing. One, did I, one of them tell you that he, he didn't want to take it on? The surgeon that I met with on that Monday morning, the neurosurgeon, when he took a look at my MRI scans, he said, 
you know, Mrs. Brown, in the brain, it's all about location, location, location. And immediately I was thinking like real estate, right? Because that's what they talk about with location. It's like, well, in the brain, that is 100% what counts is the location. And he just said, I am sorry to say, but your tumor is in a very bad location. Hey, it's Nick. Just imagine you know exactly what to say in all of your sales conversations. What would that feel like? What would that feeling be? What would it allow you to do? How would that change things for your business if you knew exactly what to say in your sales conversations? Because I want to help you with that. I want to teach you exactly what to say. And the good news is my next level sales group coaching program is getting a next level. And the next level of it is the exactly what to say methodology. I am an official certified guide of the exactly what to say body of work, and I am bringing it into my next level sales group coaching program. So if you have been looking for a group coaching program that is going to teach you your entire sales process, it's going to teach you how and where to start conversations. And then from those conversations, you're going to know exactly what to say so that you're getting more clients from them. That's exactly what you're going to get inside of my Next Level Sales Group Coaching Program. In addition, you're going to get an amazing community of women who are on the path that you're on, doing big, awesome things in this world. And you're going to get the support of that community and the coaching and guidance by me during this program so that by the end of it, you are selling more packages, working with more clients, growing your business, and making this world a healthier place. Go to the link in the show notes. Click on it to get that information. I want to see you stepping into your next level. We start July 14th. If getting more clients is important to you, if knowing what to say in your sales conversations is important to you, if having a community of amazing women to support you on your journey is important to you, then my next level sales group coaching program is perfect for you. So go to the link in the show notes, click on it, get signed up, and I will see you on July 14th as you step into your next level. And he proceeded to tell me that just based on where the tumor was located, that there really wasn't anything he could do for me. And we were so new to this that we just didn't know what that meant. And so we just kept asking questions. My husband's like, well, what about chemo? He's like, well, you can't do chemo until you know that it's cancerous. Okay, well, what about radiation? Well, you can't do radiation until you know what it is. And if you don't know if it's a tumor or another kind of mass, you risk the fact that you could um, you could trigger something to become malignant that is not currently malignant. So you can't radiate it. And so then it was well, like, what about surgery? What about a biopsy? And he said, it's too near the brainstem. It's surgery is too dangerous. And finally, out of desperation, my husband looked at him and said, well, if this were your wife or your daughter, what would you do? Mm. And I will never forget this neurosurgeon kind of dropped his eyes and wouldn't look at me. And when he finally lifted his eyes back up and met mine, he said, I'm sorry, but I wouldn't touch you with a 10 foot pole. (gasps) What? First of all, did you actually just say those words to me as a patient? Like the bedside manner aspect of it was just shocking to me. And then the desperation just quickly, quickly, quickly set in. Well, if this is the neurosurgeon, if this is the expert, and he says he doesn't have any answers. Who cleared his schedule to meet with you. Right. Who cleared his schedule because he was going to be the one who was the savior and fixed the solution, you know, created a solution to fix the problem. Now what do we do? 
And we left his office and went into the hallway of the hospital and had one of those scenes that you see on television where the couple is standing at the hospital sobbing and just my husband threw his arms around me and we just cried together and didn't know what we were going to do and tried to figure out, okay, what do we, what do we go home and tell our four young kids? Mm -hmm. Uh, What do we tell our fourth grader? You know, what do we tell our four-year-old? How, what is this going to mean for our lives? And things just really, really quickly got very, very heavy and hard in all aspects of our lives. And we just, I don't want to say we lost faith because we didn't ever lose faith that there was going to be a solution, mm-hmm. but we no longer were confident that it would be an easy solution. I mean, that went out the window quickly. Mm-hmm. And then it was, okay, what do we really have to do? How are we going to do this? And my husband, who is an engineer, quickly turned into a researcher extraordinaire, started looking up every option, trying to find solutions. Family and friends started making suggestions. And literally, we were sending my MRI scans around the world. My head was being examined around the world as people were calling in favors and asking, you know, who do you know here? Who do you know there? At Johns Hopkins, at the Mayo Clinic, at all of these different world-class places. Um, And actually, salvation ended up coming in a very unexpected way. Uh, As word started to get out of my condition, Mm-hmm. And people started coming to us and expressing their their sorrow and their sadness, but also offering up their resources. And one day at work, my husband's colleague, Chris, she came up to him and said, Tolan, oh my gosh, I've heard about your wife and I'm so sorry, but I just want you to know one of my best friends is a world-class neurosurgeon. And I asked him if he would be willing to see your wife. And you don't have to do this if you don't want to, but he said he'd be willing to work her into his schedule on Friday at lunchtime. And this was on a Wednesday. This was on a Wednesday. And so my husband said, yes, thank you so much. We're we're grateful that you have taken this step on our behalf. And so two days later, we went to the neurosurgeon's office. And this was a neurosurgeon at the Huntsman Cancer Center in Salt Lake City, Utah, which is one of the renowned cancer cancer centers in the world right now. Mm -hmm. And this man is the head of the neurosciences center. And he also was at one time the chair of the Neurosurgeon Society of America or something crazy like that. And he was truly one of the best of the best. And in going to that appointment, we found out he had a four to six month wait to get in for one consultation. But because his friend had called and asked a favor, we got in in two days. Wow. And he was the one who looked at my scans quietly, but confidently, and then looked at us and said, I think I can do this. Mm. And just like that, he turned my inoperable brain tumor diagnosis into an operable tumor diagnosis. And that is just a beautiful story of, I know you and I connected a lot over this in New York, like everything's always working out, right? Mm -hmm. That that you said it challenged your faith. And then all of a sudden it's like, okay, it's going to challenge your faith a little bit. Right. And it strengthens it. And, but that was just the beginning. 
that, oh, that was that the very was, beginning. <laughs> that was like where it started because how many surgeries later here are we since that point right there? Not, not to jump over all the stuff, but like, like I, no. Um, so I am now 15 surgeries later and a dozen years. And if ever I thought my life was going to go back to normal, I just didn't have a clue that this was not going to be just a game changer, but a life changer. And that really, uh, first of all, finding the surgeon who could do it was instrumental and truly, truly life-saving. But the process of having the tumor removed turned out to be the start, the ending of one life and the starting of a new life. And so now I have my before life and my afterlife. And, and this is my second chance at life. And even though nothing went the way that we anticipated or that we had hoped, maybe the doctors anticipated it, but I didn't, we had hoped that I would go in for one surgery, five days in the hospital, and that that would take care of things. But just because of the severity of the location, um, it ended up that I had three brain surgeries, 35 days in and out of neurocritical care fighting for my life. And ended up having nearly every complication and side effect um, that they were aware of at that time, including a spinal fluid leak, where spinal fluid was actually dripping out of my nose and down the back of my throat, a life-threatening condition called pneumocephalus, where spinal fluid was leaking out. That meant there was a hole somewhere in my brain and air was leaking in. And facial paralysis, I lost the movement and all of the functioning on the right side of my face. And then I lost the hearing in my right ear and just all of these things piled mm -hmm. on top of each other. Mm -hmm. And so even though after the first 35 days, we finally got to a point where we realized my life was preserved. Uh, the next, literally, it, it's been a dozen years, we have been trying to adjust for and accommodate and figure out what now that so many parts of my body and life were, were no longer the same and no longer functioned in the ways that we wanted them to. In the removal of the tumor, in addition to the facial paralysis and some of the other complications, we also realized that a lot of the damage that had been done to my nerves was going to be permanent, that the damage was done. And even by removing the tumor, it didn't fix everything. So I was left still with chronic migraines, uh, almost chronic disease spells and several other things that I still deal with to this day. And so now we're, we're 15 surgeries in, but there have been some um, additional miraculous and wonderful things because technology is amazing. And right now there is a, a doctor, there's a couple of doctors in the world, but there's one close to where I live. He's in Southern California. He runs a place called the Facial Paralysis Institute. And Dr. Azizadeh has pioneered these surgeries where um, for patients with facial paralysis, he can harvest nerves and muscles from other parts of your body and then implant them into your face to restore some functionality. So in the last year and a half, I've had two surgeries where they have taken nerves from my ankle and from my thigh and then a muscle from my thigh and implanted it into my cheek. And so... For the first time in 12 years, um, just a few months ago, I was able to kiss my husband again. And I have been able to hold food in my mouth and be able to chew and hold fluid in my mouth and just really, really make some incredible and beautiful progress to leading a more normal life. And in the meantime, I have become 
a huge advocate for, you know, taking care of yourself and taking control of the things that you can control so that you can live the best life possible. Even if that life is a mess, you can make it a beautiful mess. <laughs> well, and you have, you have done that so beautifully. And even just the, the, the will to keep going. I mean, there's so, there's so much to this story you just shared, you know, cause, cause we're talking about the, the medical complications, the things that you were experiencing. And I'm still thinking, yeah. And who was taking care of your kids and who was, you know, there's so many things that you as a family have gone through as well and, yes. and how this impacts all of you. Yes. And that's a really good point. And when I wrote my my book, it's called The Sun Still Shines, and it is my memoir of my experiences. So many readers contacted me and said, wow, this is an amazing story. I would love to read the same story from your husband's perspective. And mm -hmm. how the heck did he get through this? And to answer your question, my mom, my parents at the time lived in Hawaii. My dad was the president of the Polynesian Cultural Center in Hawaii, CEO, big job, my mom moved into my home to start taking care of my kids. My dad flew out. He flew out on a red eye and arrived the morning of my first surgery. And of course, the plan was that I would be in the hospital five days. So he planned to stay with me in the hospital um, as much as possible. And he ended up sitting there with me day in and day out for 28 days as I went through all of the different surgeries, all of the procedures, all of the complications. And he only left when it was time for my brother's college graduation. And he flew home for my brother's college graduation, stayed for the weekend, and then flew back in a couple of days later so he could be with me again um, until I came home from the hospital. Incredible. Incredible. The level of support and just things that had to come together, you know, to, to make all of that happen. That's that's beautiful. Um, what, just out of curiosity, what was the, had the surgery not happened, what was the prognosis? What did they tell you to expect? They didn't tell me what to expect. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that that was intentional. Yeah. Because it came to the point where there just weren't really any options. It wasn't, you could do this or you could do this. It was, this is our only choice at this point in time. And the unspoken was just as powerful as the spoken, the yeah. things that they didn't say, because essentially what I understood was you, things are just going to get worse and harder. And really you can go home and wait around until this right. takes you, or we can try to fix it and remove it through surgery. And obviously the surgery was somewhat successful in that regard. They were able to remove about 80% of the tumor. There is still about 20% that is there. They hoped that in time it would kind of calcify and just disintegrate. It has not done that. So I still do have a portion of the tumor that is there. However, miraculously, it has not regrown. It has just stayed static. And so if I were to get an MRI today, a surgeon who hadn't seen my previous MRIs would probably be nervous. They would say, oh my goodness, there is something there that's very close to the brainstem and they would probably have reason to fear. But if they saw how it was before, they would realize, okay, this is the after effects and it's stable and steady as it is. And so that's been a tremendous blessing for us. Wow. 
that is, you know, and I, I want to say even from a bigger perspective too, there's a theme here. And I know that this will resonate with my health and wellness coaches. Cause you said earlier, you know, once somebody finally confirmed something, you said, I felt vindicated, I felt validated. And I think so many of us in the health and wellness world, the reason that we've been called into doing this work to help others is we not necessarily to your degree, not that we're here to compare, but we've dealt with some kind of health issue where we felt like nobody really understood, understood it. Nobody or believed it. Right. Nobody believed it. Well, it's just, you know, and especially as women, well, it's just, it's just how, you know, it, it, it's how things are and it's how, and it's like, no, I know something is going on. And, and, and I know that this was a big lesson for you. So what, what was that lesson? I know there are many, but what was one of the, one of the, or a couple of the biggest through that? I would say one of the biggest things I learned is that I need to trust myself. And they say trust your gut, but trust that feeling that you have, whether it's in your gut, whether it's in your head, whether it's in your heart, you need to learn to trust what your body and I believe what your spirit is telling you because you know, you know, you know when something is amiss and you may sweep it under the rug, you may try to advil yourself so that it doesn't take over your days, but ultimately, you know if there's something that is not going the way that it should. And I tried to remember that over and over again. And when I got in the hospital, I found it was really, really hard to advocate for myself because once I had surgery, I really was debilitated. I was unable to take care of myself. Um, Things were so serious. I mean, I had just had brain surgery for heaven's sakes, and I was laying there in bed, unconscious half of the time, people coming in and out, being fed through IVs and tubes and all of my bodily fluids being measured and accounted for. And it got to a point when I got so sick, when all of these complications set in, doctors and nurses stopped talking to me and they were talking to the people in the room about me. Here's what we think we need to do for Jody. And that was a point where I could hear it, but they were not addressing me any longer. And I knew that that was an indication of how sick I was. But then I also thought, okay, if I really am that sick, then I just need to do whatever I'm being told or whatever they were saying to everyone else around me. And after my third brain surgery, uh, I had whittled down to 89 pounds. Mm. I was, I couldn't spend more than a few minutes on my feet at one time. I could barely walk to go around one lap of the hospital. I mean, I just, my body was completely, completely worn down. But we realized at that point in time that I was going to live. And so being able to get home was my next goal. And in order to get home, I knew I had to regain some strength. I had to be able to start functioning on my own again. And I will never forget um, one day I had a nurse that I had never had before. And the CNA came in and she's like, oh, darling, I've been reading your chart. You have just been through it, girl. And she was super, super friendly, but almost talked to me like I was a child. She's like, we're going to help you. We're going to, we're going to do the things that you need to do. And, and at that time I realized, okay, this isn't what I need. I don't need someone who's going to talk to me like a kid. I need someone who's going to advocate for me. Who's going to help me. I needed a coach. I needed someone who was really going to show me tough love and we were going to do this together. And when I could see that that wasn't her personality, even though she had a lovely personality, I just thought, that's not what I need right now. I don't need a kindergarten teacher. I need an Olympic coach 
who is going to push me, who is going to challenge me, who is going to help me do the things I need to do that are going to be hard for me to do. And by this point in time, I finally realized I'm not going to get better till I take things into my own hands. So I remember she left my room and I called the nurse's station and I asked for the nurse manager in charge. And I talked to him and I said, I need you to assign me another nurse. He says, what's going on? Has something happened? Did, did she treat you? No, no, she's fine. She's good. She's a wonderful person. But this is not what I need right now. I am so close. Home is within reach again. But that means I have to be strong and I need to be able to sleep. I need you guys to stop coming in and waking me up every few hours. And I need someone who's going to give me the right kind of care and encouragement. And he knew at that point in time that I think he could hear it in my voice and he had worked with me enough that he kind of, I could almost see him shaking his head on the other end of the line saying, yeah, okay, okay, let's get you a different nurse and let's make sure that you get taken care of. And really from that point on, the get her done girl was back and I was going to do everything in my power to get myself healthy, to advocate for myself, to trust myself, to take my care into my own hands. And granted, I couldn't do that all the way along because I was just too ill to do it. But as soon as I got to the point where I could, that became huge for doing the things that needed to be done. So I first of all, go home. And then once I got home so that I could get stronger and start getting back to a, a functional place in life, yeah. because I always thought that when I went home, it would mean that I was whole and I was healthy and I was well. And it was so far from that reality in the beginning, right? In the beginning that I still had, I mean, my mother still lived with us for months and took care of us and no longer just my children, but me too. I, I couldn't even eat regular foods. I had been living on IVs for so long. My gut was shot, my endocrine system. I had to start all over again with foods. We had to reintroduce foods one at a time, just like you would do with an infant. And so in order to really be able to learn how to live all over again, to be able to, to walk and care for myself and, and swallow and eat, I really had to listen more than ever to my body and, and advocate for myself and stand up for myself when things got hard. That's beautiful. Yeah, I I hear some really powerful themes and, and lessons in there. One, obviously trusting yourself and knowing like even from the very beginning, something's wrong. I know something's wrong. These doctors are just going to keep like putting me through the the merry-go-round, but I'm going to advocate for myself, right? So trusting yourself, advocating for yourself. And then I think, you know, just from a, another perspective too, the surrender that you had to do to really rely on the support, rely on, like when you're laying there in, in the hospital bed, you can't do anything for yourself. No. And as much as you know what you need, you also need to surrender and lean into what's available for you and allow the support. And one of the things in learning to trust yourself is also, I think, listening to what your spirit tells you as to who else you can trust. And that's why by the time I had Dr. Coldwell, the surgeon who who was able to help save my life, I knew I could trust him. I had already been at that point in time to, you know, dozens of other doctors, not knowing if I could trust them. And one of the things that I will never forget that Dr. Coldwell said is he said, 
you are not alone. I am not going to leave you to figure this out on your own. I will be with you on this journey. And knowing that he was fighting for me every bit as much as I was fighting for me mm-hmm. really helped me know where I could place my trust. Yeah. And it also helped me when I got into the hospital and not every doctor was Dr. Colwell. I, I, I was in a teaching hospital. So we had residents coming in and out and they were testing out their latest theories and the things they read in their textbooks. And, oh, I just, you know, learned how to do this procedure. <laughs> you get to be my guinea pig. And knowing who to place my trust in, which mm-hmm. doctors I felt comfortable with and listening to myself and then being able to say, oh, I'm not comfortable with what they're asking me to do. And I couldn't always do that. And then knowing that my family was there also to take over that role when I was not able to. Yeah. And I didn't know it at the time, but they were very methodical about it. And they tried to make sure that someone was there with me during all waking hours of the day so that nothing was happening that we were not aware of um, as a family. And I didn't know that that's what they were doing, but they were saying, okay, if she's not able to advocate for herself, we are going to be here to advocate on her behalf. And that is a very, very powerful blessing to know who you can trust and to be able to essentially place your life in the hands of people who you know will will do no wrong by you. Right, who you know will look out for you. Well, and I think think that is actually probably where a big piece of what you teach now. I know in your work, I mean, you, you do you do such beautiful, amazing work in, in so many ways. But one of the things you talk a lot about is your hood, your community, <laughs> right? And I think yes. that tells a story too of like, whether it's your family or the doctors or the right nurse that you know, like in that mm-hmm. moment, when you advocated for yourself and you said, this isn't going to work for me. She's a lovely person, but I know what I need. I need to put myself around somebody who's going to help me rise, who's going to help me become the version of me that I need to be to get out of this hospital and get home. Yes. And I think all of that probably lends itself to why you teach what you do now. So tell us a little bit about what that means to you when you use the term hood and what community really is. So I teach a lot now about becoming anti-fragile, which is more than being resilient, more than being robust, more than bouncing back to as good as you were. It is becoming stronger because of the things that you go through. Mm-hmm. And a huge principle in growing through your struggles and through your trauma is community. It is who you are surrounded by and being intentional about that. And I did not realize both through finding the doctor, through taking care of my needs while I was in the hospital, as well as the people who came and took care of the needs of my family, things that I never even saw. My mom was here to take care of my kids, but there were neighbors who were doing the carpool, who were taking my kids to soccer, to piano lessons. There was a neighbor who helped my daughter prepare for a talent show that I never even heard about until after it was all said and done. And when I heard that she was in this talent show and she played the piano with her little friend, I was like, how did she do that? It was because this neighbor said, I'm not going to let Lindy miss this because her mom is in the hospital. So she took it upon herself and she and her daughter worked together. And then her daughter and my daughter did a duet for the talent show. And another friend took her to swim lessons with her every day and enrolled her in swim lessons for half of the summer while her mom was in the hospital and couldn't do anything. Someone else took my kids to their soccer practices and soccer games and brought meals and then gave my mom some respite so that she could have a break. 
So when I talk now about the importance of community and hood, I call it your growth hood. The people who are surrounding you during your struggles, during that opportunity that you have to grow more than ever before. Who are those people? And they are so important, not just because they're your neighbors, but because literally you don't ever know when they could save your life or be that saving grace at a moment when you need it for your children or be there to reach out when your husband or your mom or your child or whoever it is, you just, you can't underestimate the power of those relationships. And a lot of people now talk about networks. Well, having a network is great, but what you really want is a community. You want a hood, people that are intentionally choosing to be with each other and who are choosing to help each other on their journey, to lighten the load intentionally to carry the weight. That's one of the big things. Everyone around me carried the weight so that all I had to do was focus on surviving. And then little by little by little, I was able to start carrying some of that again. And then my goal has been now, how can I help carry that weight for you? Mm -hmm. What can I do to ease your burdens? How can I be there for you? My dear friend lost her husband in a tragic accident shortly after I was ill. And just knowing some of the hardships that she would be facing and now would be facing more on her own. I just wanted to be there with her all of the time. And I realized how inadequate some of the protocols that we do for people who are struggling really are. Oh, like our church group said, okay, well, we've taken in three meals. We've gone to Sear. We helped with the funeral. And I don't mean to say this lightly, but it is kind of checked off. Like, okay, we've, we've, We've really tried hard to minister to to her as a member of our congregation. But I saw the ongoing needs that she had. And all of a sudden, I could see myself in her shoes and realize I needed help for years and years, not days, not months, not weeks, years. And it really helped emphasize that you need the strength of that community. And when you have the strength of those people, you really can help share the load, carry the burden together, link arms, and get through life together. Beautiful. Beautiful. And, and your story is such a testament to that. Like where you would be without all of that support would be a very different reality. I don't think I would still be here had, had the people in our hood and community not intervened yeah. at the times when they did. Even and, just going back to the woman that your husband worked with. Yes. That, I know this really amazing neurosurgeon and he is willing to see you in two days, even though she didn't say this, even though he doesn't see people for six months out because of his, like, even that, all the little nuanced places where the support came through. Hey, I'm interrupting you real quick because I know you're enjoying this podcast and I know you're listening to this podcast because you care about your business. You care about the people you work with and you want to help people. As a matter of fact, you want to help more people. But I bet you often ask yourself, where am I going to find clients? And I've got your answer. I have a free training video for you. It is called 33 Places to Find Clients, and it comes with a workbook where you can take notes on all the 33 places that I give you. So I want you to get this downloaded. It's free. Get it today because ultimately it's going to help you understand where to go every day to interact with people so that you can start to get more clients and help more people, which is the goal of all of this. So go to healthystepswithnicole.com. 
backslash 33 places, download it, watch it. I can't wait to hear from you and hear what you think about it because this is going to be a game changer for you to know every day where you need to go and what you need to do to find more people to become your clients. Okay, now back to the show. And now one of my personal life mottos and one of the things that I share with audiences when I speak is every interaction is an opportunity to change a life. Mm. And you don't know when the little pebble of an interaction that you create in someone's life can then become the ripple effect that literally changes everything. Yep. And I am a firm, firm believer that when we do what we can do to support one another, even if on our part, we feel like it's not enough or it's small or it's not going to make a difference, all of those things are their own pebbles. And together, when they combine, really can can change the tide for what someone is going through. I love that. I, I like to say we are all walking permission slips. Oh, I like that. Right. No matter what in your life, you know, I mean, listen, Jody is an author, a speaker, a, 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 an amazing, phenomenal person, but you don't have to be those things to be making an impact in your life. No, right? not like at all. Everybody at every given point is making an impact. Like you said, the pebbles, the, the ripple effect, like, we're all impacting those around us. People are always watching you and how you show up leaves an impression on others at all times. And some of the most impactful moments I had, uh, again, were not from people who were at any level on a organizational chart. They were CNAs. They were people who were coming in and emptying the garbage or cleaning the floor, but who stopped to actually carry on a conversation with me when everyone else was just walking by and no longer talking to me. When they invested in me, one young CNA took a half an hour and just washed my hair so that I could have a little sense of humanity and peace after I had been so ill. And by the time he was done, I was completely infused and energized again and ready to keep fighting for myself. Mm -hmm. And so it doesn't matter what position you're in or what job you have. It is by sharing the gifts that you have and seeing what you might be able to do in a moment that only you can do. And sometimes it's because you're there physically, you're geographically in the same location and you're there to help someone. Sometimes it's because you have access to a resource or you, or you know a person or you've read a book or you have an idea, whatever that is, when you share those resources with the people who are in your community and in your hood, you, you can honestly change the outcome of a life. You'll, absolutely. And I think we all have that, you know, even as you were explaining that the CNA that came in and washed your hair, it made me think of a time where I think we all have these stories or these experiences that we've had where somebody made an impact that we didn't even necessarily get to tell them or they don't right. even like there's a woman that I will forever, like, it'll probably make me cry if I think about it. I was in the hospital and I was there by myself and um, I had been there for three days and I was not well, I was delirious and I was not really conscious. And on the second evening, so almost the third day, this nurse, she was on the night shift and she came in and I happened to be awake and I was pretty conscious and I was just bawling. I didn't know what to do. I was so scared and I was by myself and nobody had been there with me for the whole three days. And she, I remember she had a, a Jamaican accent and she sat down on the bed with me and held me like I was a little baby, like she held me. And just kept saying, it's okay. It's good. I'm here for you. I'm here mm -hmm. for you. I'll stay here as long as you need me to. And just let me bawl my eyes out. She cried with me. 
I never saw her again. I, to be honest, I was pretty delirious for the entire stay that I was in the hospital. I never saw her again. I will never forget that moment and that connection. And I was not well. And I needed that in that moment. And she was there to give it to me. And I just think that's so important to remember how much those little interactions can mean to somebody else. And you may never know. She may never know. And I think oftentimes of this young CNA, and I have told his story literally hundreds of times, but I never had the chance to really thank him because that was the only time I ever really saw him was when he came in and had that one shift with me. Um, And when I tell the story now, when I tell people about Lucas, I think, my goodness, thousands of people have been influenced by Lucas, but I don't even know if he knows what he did for me that day. But if it can inspire others to live like Lucas, to be present, to see what's in front of them, to see that the true needs of the person in front of you, then we'll all be a little better. And I do believe that someday I'll find Lucas and I'll be able to show him, look at all of the lives that you've changed by that one simple act of kindness that you did years ago. Well, and like you said, we all have that opportunity at any given moment. Like you might be standing in line to pay for your gas at a gas station and smile at a stranger. And maybe that smile was the the differentiator between that stranger going and harming himself and not like, who knows, who knows. But at the end of the day, every small thing that we do leaves such a big impact on the world. And we don't always know, and we don't need to know. The bottom line is how we choose to show up affects the world all the time in all ways. Absolutely. Perfectly said. Yeah. Well, and I think that even, you know, from a, from a very, I guess, recent connected perspective between you and I, like the people you put yourself around, right? You and I have just met. And I think the power of not just who you put yourself around, but how you make that happen is just as important to mention because it's not like you and I were just the chosen ones and we showed up in New York City and it was like, here you go, you're both certified. You know, like we still had to make intentional choices and decisions to be in that room and 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 get to meet each other. Mm-hmm. And I think when we see these opportunities in our lives and we see sometimes they look challenging, they look scary, they look hard. Like, how could I possibly make that happen? And you and I weren't just plucked and, and plopped down in New York City. It was like, oh, okay, I have this opportunity. It requires me making a significant investment. It requires me creating time and space in my calendar. It requires me getting myself into the room in New York City. It requires me connecting with these new people. And, you know, there's just so much to be said for the decisions we have to make to get us in the room, to put us in the right communities. That it is very intentional and, or it should be intentional because it's going to happen one way or the other. But if you don't choose the people that you're going to be spending time with, then the five people that you spend the most time with who are going to become the five people you become the most like are going to be by default. And you don't want to go to the lowest common denominator. And so you do need to be intentional. And I know I had to figure out, you know, okay, what are my kids going to do? How's my family going to be taken care of? I ended up leaving for a trip and I was gone for 10 days and had to arrange hotels and multiple flights and as well as the time, the cost, you know, the whole thing. And it was very intentional, but it was because like you, I wanted a seat at the table. And interestingly, we all know that, um, you know, you want to be in the room where it happens is one of the big lines from Hamilton. Mm -hmm. And in some of my presentations, I actually kind of play off of that and say, imagine if we were able to combine Hamilton 
and the desire to be in the room where it happens, to be intentional, to want to make a difference. Well, you combine that with Mr. Rogers' neighborhood. And then what do you have? You have the people who are your neighbors are those who you are in the room with every day in life. They are the people who together you're making life happen. And I just love that because if your neighbors, if your community, if your hood are the people that you're choosing to be with and you're choosing to make good, positive things happen, you have that intentionality and that love and respect combination, then no matter what hits, you'll get through it together. But it's got to be intentional. You need to choose who you're going to be with. And I always say, I hope that one of the people that we all decide to choose is the Lord or your higher power, whatever you might call uh, that, whether it's in terms of the universe or God or Jesus or whatever you say. Or spirit. spirit, Yes. I hope that 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 is one of the greatest influences in your life. Number one. Number one. That is really going to be the determining factor is if you have the faith to keep going every day. And just recently, I read a book by a man, Richard Montanez. And he said in his book that a lot of times we talk about faking it till you make it. He -hmm. says, you should never fake it till you make it. You should faith it until Mm -hmm. you make it that you need to have the faith in your God and in yourself that you're going to be able to do what you need to do. And that just really resonated with me that you need to be intentional. You need to have the faith in yourself, in your higher power, and then in the people that you've put your trust in that together you can go through life and, and do the things you need to, to succeed and live a beautiful life. Wow. Beautiful. Amazing. Thank you so much, Jody, for sharing your story for being so courageous, so willing to be vulnerable, and now using, you know, I, I say this a lot with my coaching clients, don't let your pain go to waste. Mm-mm. You can make purpose out of it. <laughs> right, purpose it, right? Move forward with it. And, you know, obviously, let it be your personal thing as you're healing from it. But when the time comes, pay it forward, right? Let, let, let that pain serve someone else in a way that, it's not a pain anymore. It's, it's, it's you being called into something bigger than you and you get to now share and help others because of it. Which does mean you have to share it. And some people would rather not do that. Some would rather sweep it under the rug, forget it, you know, flush that memory. But the reality is when you are authentic and vulnerable with the people around you, not only does it increase your trust, but it also allows you to help them through what they're going through and allows you and them to become stronger because of what you're going through. And um, I think that there's, there's power in that. And the more that we can do this journey together, the better our lives will become. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And and if, you know, you get to choose how you want to share it, just let it allow you to show up differently in life, whatever that means, right? Mm -hmm. Show up as, as the new, like you said earlier, you know, early on in your journey, it was like, I just want to go back to life as normal. And what you are being called into is your new normal. Right. And sometimes that feels very uncomfortable, um, but there's a lot of opportunity there. And, and that's really what we're here to do. Right. Like you have a heartbeat for a reason. And um, and sometimes the worst of situations can create the best absolutely. life. Absolutely. I believe that's always the case. So beautiful. So so tell everybody where can they find you? You have an amazing book. You're an author. I know you speak on stages all over the world and also 
you do a lot of amazing nonprofit stuff as well. I do a lot of nonprofit. That was actually my career before before my second life, <laughs> in my before life. And so I love to work with nonprofits. I have a huge passion around that. And I am still a nonprofit consultant. Mm-hmm. And uh, the speaking and training, um, you know, I just want to make the world a better place. One little moment in one person at a time. So I am very active online, uh, specifically on probably LinkedIn, mm-hmm. uh, followed by Facebook. Those are the two social media platforms where you can find me easiest. And if you want to learn more about what I do and check out my speaking, some videos, go to globalleadergroup.com slash Jody, J-O-D-I. And Global Leader Group is the firm that I am a partner in. And that is my personal page where you can read all about the different things that I offer and see some of the videos of me speaking and uh, just get to experience a little bit of my journey along with me. Incredible. Thank you so much for sharing that. We'll make sure that we get that link in the show notes and also the link to to your social media channels. Please go connect with Jody. There's also some, I, I, I remember there was a YouTube video that you sent me that um, I think is really phenomenal to kind of, you know, recap your story and um, just loved watching that. So we can put that in the show notes as well so that people can uh, can check that out. And I would love to give away a signed copy of my book to one of your readers. So you can choose how you will do that. But I would be thrilled to share my story and I will send uh, your lucky winner a copy of my book. Incredible. Thank you so much for that. That is awesome. Tell us the name of your book again. It is called The Sun Still Shines, How a Brain Tumor Helped Me See the Light. Wow. Incredible. That's so awesome. Well, how about this? How about we make it a contest where whoever's listening to this, share it on social media, tag Jody and I in it, and we'll choose one of our winners that way. Fantastic. Awesome. I look forward to connecting with uh, some of your listeners, and hopefully we will be able to have this be just the start of our relationship. Awesome. Yes. Thank you so much for being here, Jody, and sharing your story. I just adore you. And I'm so grateful that uh, my audience now got to learn from you as well. Thank you so much. Thank you. Awesome. All right. That is a wrap for this episode. Thank you so much for listening. And by the way, if you like this, subscribe because there's more good stuff coming your way. Also, please leave a review. It would mean so, so much to me and it would help others who are considering listening to this podcast to understand how amazing it is. And while you're at it, why not share with a friend? And by the way, one last thing. I would love to hear from you. I would love to connect with you. So you got a couple options. You can check me out on Instagram at Healthy Steps with Nicole. You can find me in my private Facebook group, Nicole Sales Superstars, or you can go to my website, healthystepswithnicole.com. I would love to hear from you, and I can't wait.